This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio. Greetings for iUniverse. This is Jay Douglas Barker. The book is titled Defending Trump, a debate on the Trump presidency in real time. And joining me are two friends, one an attorney, Stephen Barry, and a physician, Mark Lieberman. Thank you, sirs, for joining me. Thank you. This is a fascinating book. Uh, I was fascinated on a couple of levels. First of all, it uh, covers a, a long period of time and a total of 774 pages. Whose idea was it to uh, put this debate between friends into writing? Well, the book, I think, wrote itself. Right after the election, Mark started to text me about his views on Trump, and I started to respond. And we didn't anticipate that it would continue going on a daily basis for the entire term, but it did. And then at some point, about a year ago, uh, I looked at the text messages, and I thought, we have a, we have a book here. Hmm. And I called Mark, and I asked Mark, what do you think? And he thought it was a great idea, but it took a while to get it actually you know, moving, and the pandemic actually was... The trigger it gave us the opportunity, or it gave me the opportunity to, to to move forward. I contacted Mark again, and I said, "Mark, I'm going forward." I think he was a little bit surprised at that point, and, and uh, it, as it became real, but um, he uh, was gracious enough to go forward, and the book is the result. Mark, thank you for for allowing that to take place. Uh, now, Mr. Trump. For those in the middle and those who are uh, realistic and rational, is a unique guy. Uh, he has a, 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 an unusual personality, and yet, uh, at least from my perspective, he's been able to get things accomplished that, under normal circumstances, a traditional politician would never have been able to accomplish. What is your view of that, Mark? My response to his presidency from the start, that sort of informed, I guess, my emotions has been less about substance and more about the person. Yes. And I know that a lot of people think exactly the opposite. I have a close brother-in-law who holds Republican ideals very strong, and that's primary, and he tells me that he can't stand Trump. <laughs> He'll be voting for him because it's irrelevant. But for whatever reason, I have not been that way. I think as a kid and throughout my professional life, I had the, an aversion to bullies, uh, to people who are more uh, about style versus substance. So it just hit me the wrong way. I've always been a Republican. I was a strong Jeb Bush supporter. Uh, and before that, I loved both George Bush's and Ronald Reagan. But I think I may be wrong as the book debates, but I am just so see Trump in such a different way that while I can acknowledge that his brash style, you know, can be effective and that he was able to get certain things accomplished 
and also admit that a president who was brash like him without some of what I think are his faults, I, I might have been able to sort of feel like Stephen does about him. Mm-hmm. So I guess I will concede that he may have been effective at instituting certain policies, some of it from his doing, some of it from his handlers, some of it from circumstances, like the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. But at the end of the day, um, that is secondary to me versus what I believe he represents as a person and the presidency. One thing that I found, uh, I guess, off-putting or a, a problem for me, and it has nothing to do with Mr. Trump as a person or even his style, I am a Canadian by birth and have uh, several Canadian uh, family members who uh, socialize with me on uh, on social media. And anytime the name or the event of Donald Trump comes up, they start spewing, if I may use that word, uh, I would say talking points from opposition. And it has nothing to do with, uh, with logic or even a proper understanding of what's taking place in the United States. That really is disturbing to me. I have one friend, or they used to be a friend, I guess they still are, but we just don't talk anymore, that is uh, using a CNN point that is often broadcast in Canada that uh, claims, and I have not investigated, but I, I, I hear the phrase coming out, well, Mr. Trump has lied over, he's documented as having lied over 26,000 times. And someone is out there every time he speaks, uh, either fact-checking, which I doubt, or tabulating his conversation and saying it's always a lie and i have um, i have problems with that particular approach to understanding the presidency i don't think they use that same um, standard with other politicians who are in the limelight uh, steve share a little more of the book style because it is basically a back and forth conversation from emails I, i'm thinking or from text between you two Right. The book, the book was text messages, and the text messages basically were triggered by the news of the day. And, and typically, Mark would see a news story or there would be a development reported in the news, and he'd text me about it. Many times, the text would be in the, in the vein of, oh, this time Trump is finished. You know, there'd be an allegation about Trump, and, and um, you know, before we had any knowledge of what the basis for the news story was Mark was already uh, convinced that that was it for Trump. And I tried to bring uh, the conversation back, you know, back to reality. You know, the point that you just raised about the number, about the number of lies Trump has allegedly told, I've tried to, you know, f- figure out where that comes from. Mm. And it's certainly not anything significant, certainly not as significant as uh, as former administration officials and media figures lying that they had proof that Trump colluded with Russia when they had none. Right. That's the most one of the most significant lies ever told in American history, as far as I'm concerned. And certainly nothing like that, you know, nothing like that occurred. Or, for example, when Adam Schiff, and this is in the book, uh, uh, read a fake. A version of the transcript of Trump's call with the Ukrainian President Zelensky. Yes, I remember in which, that. Uh, she, yeah, and, she, and Schiff alleged that Trump said 
I want you to make up dirt on my opponent, lots of it. And he said that seven times or something like that, and that wasn't true. It was a lie. Incredible. And those, those are real, those are consequential lies. And Trump, you know, says um, something like, my inauguration was the largest ever. Who cares? Right? <laughs> it's, it's, it's puffery. Yeah, it is puffery. <laughs> And from my perspective, harmless puffery. I mean, he does he does uh, have a a broad brush when he when he talks and when he gets and and I like the president, but he uh, sometimes gets his sentences backwards and upside down and uh, very repetitive. I've tried to figure out exactly what that is, but when I look behind the scenes and see the results of some of the uh, effect that it's had in a positive way, I'm standing in in awe that he still is standing. And I think possibly both of you could say that, that uh, Steve, Mark, you see a gentleman with a lot of energy. I don't know where it comes from. <laughs> well, I think to echo what Stephen said, the news cycle was so fast and furious. And I, and I will uh, concede that the way it works to get the attention of viewers was sort of like every night there was breaking news. Uh, that was a new Washington Post Times story. <laughs> and it was indeed like I would be bringing you to Steve's attention. And I never told Steve this, but I, I think a little bit I felt sort of like the uh, coyote trying to get the roadrunner. And every time I thought <laughs> I got him, I'm like, this, look at this thing is now. Look at this story now. And it ultimately ended up not to, to stick, so to speak um like a lot of the things have well, played out to date to date yes to date yeah and one of the things i i do admire about the book uh, you gentlemen are lifelong friends and and even though there's difference of opinion it doesn't get nasty in the book at least i didn't find it maybe there's a nasty page in there that i i missed but it's it's back and forth but it's it's conversation, and I, I wish there was more of that in a gentle form in our culture right now. Uh, in getting this book, uh, what was your hope in uh, publishing it? Was it to outline uh, all of the uh, flaws of the current presidency, or was it to uh, share the fact that you can have a different viewpoint and still get along? Well, from my perspective, when I looked at the, the text messages, I went back and reviewed them. I thought my first goal, and this is from the Trump side, was to present an intelligent and articulate, and hopefully I did, a defense of Trump's presidency and of Trump himself, and also to demonstrate that you can remain friends and disagree about politics, especially about Donald Trump. Uh, Mark may have a different view, and um, I don't know if you want to share that. Well, I think in terms of one of the things that came out from the book that might be unintended is that if ever there's going to be a history, comprehensive history of the Trump presidency, given the changing news cycle, it will be quite voluminous, to say the least. I mean, look at these books that come out and cover a very small period. So I think that um, because it was organic in a response as things were happening and I would have to say Stephen's brilliant idea to sort of have the headings uh, of each little discussion. It really serves uh, not as any kind of comprehensive history of the Trump presidency, but I don't know how many people in the future will be able to read such a tome, whereas this book is touches on things that I think people may have already forgotten, like the Covington Boys, which I probably you know was a little bit wrong in my initial reaction, 
but I bring it up as just something that's sort of ancient history. Mm-hmm. And so I think people will look at this book as um, perhaps an easy beginner's guide to the Trump presidency because it's addressing the highlights, talking about it the way real people talk, get cutting to the heart of the issue. A lot of these presidential, even you mentioned political junkies may like look true, but I think they are a lot concerned with the inner workings, the minutiae behind the scenes. We're cutting right to the chase on every topic representing both viewpoints, and basically the middle is sort of what actually, what happened, and then our takes on it. Yes. The the, uh, the commentary also, uh, we'll say for the reader's sake, is is short and to the point. It's not a long, lengthy discussion with a lot of minutiae. It, it does have opinion in it, but it's, you know, maybe a page at the at the longest and with headlines uh, such as uh, back to impeachment, uh, back to character, uh, children, more about lies and liars. Uh, those are the headings that you have uh, placed in the book. The one that caught my attention that I would like an explanation on is Nancy Pelosi's teeth. What is that all about? <laughs> My, I have a, uh, even knows I have a relative who's a dentist, my brother-in-law, so I think he thought I may, even though I'm a surgeon, he thought I may have some inner insight into that, I guess. But I'm not even, I don't even remember the exchange. And when I was going through each of the conversations, I was trying to find the essence of the particular conversation. And apparently, when we got to that brief uh, part of the book, uh, Nancy Pelosi's teeth was what we were discussing. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I think, by the way, you said it didn't get very personal. I think somewhere in there, I remember, there were a couple of times where we each felt we needed to apologize to the other. We had to walk a fine line between me saying things like, Trump supporters are idiots, and then Stephen could then use college-level philosophy and logic to say i'm a trump supporter therefore i'm an idiot Mm. that didn't require an apology but there were some times where i think it got a little over the top but not personal in a sense but that i think we did offend each other because we're representing the viewpoint and Stephen personified to me the trump universe and so i think I always was looking for him to finally make a concession because I couldn't get that concession out of the United States Trump supporters, and he personifies that. Mm. But, uh, he was very effective at uh, having uh, responses. I think the worst he ever would concede would be, I might have used a different choice of words. <laughs> would be about as far as he would go, which was a deft touch. Right. Uh, it's, oh, yeah. So that, that, that would probably be around, you know, that would probably... Uh, apply to a discussion, let's say, when when Trump referred to uh, certain countries as uh, asshole countries. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, you know, my position was, well, he's not wrong. They're dysfunctional. <laughs> maybe maybe he should have used a different word, <laughs> yeah. but it certainly didn't didn't warrant the reaction to it. I, I concur with your observations there. Uh, sometimes the um, the rhetoric gets uh, in the way of the message. You folks have done a wonderful job. Two lifelong friends, uh, Stephen and Mark, have penned a book or shared their thoughts on contemporary 
uh, subject matter that relates to the Trump presidency, and I think it's a fascinating work. And also, it's not one that's going to, I don't think it would offend anybody that is a logical thinker. I think it's just uh, wonderfully put together. The title of the book, again, is Defending Trump, a debate on the Trump presidency in real time. My guest authors, Stephen Berry, attorney, and Mark Z. Lieberman, who is a physician. Gentlemen, where can I get a copy of this book? You can get a copy on Amazon and on barnesandnoble.com. Excellent. They can also do a search under either the author's names or under the title Defending Trump, which I think would probably bring it up to the surface somewhere. And if it's not being hidden by the bookstores, uh, they'll find it. Uh, They can also ask for the book by title uh, from their local bookseller. Gentlemen, thank you for sharing your insight and also sharing your friendship in this book, a wonderful book of over 700 pages, almost 800. It's amazing. Uh, Thank you for sharing your, your viewpoint on the Trump presidency and also on politics in the United States of America in 2020. Thank you. My pleasure. For iUniverse, this is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Congratulations on getting your book published. The effort you put into your work is truly commendable. But what's next? What will happen to all the knowledge you have worked so hard to acquire to produce your book? Here at Toginet Radio, we can provide you a platform to keep your knowledge working for you through the power of podcast. The subjects our podcasts cover are as varied as the grains of sand on a beach. From life coaching, to military resources, to business success, even to the paranormal. We have a place for everyone. To get started on your next step, call Scott at 903-787-5880 or email him at scott at toginetradio.com that's s-c-o-t-t at t-o-g-i-n-e-t r-a-d-i-o dot com Welcome back to iUniverse Radio Greetings for Indie Book Publisher, iUniverse. This is J. Douglas Barker. The book is titled, well, it's got a title called Diminished Capacity, a novel of legal suspense. And joining me is the author who happens to be an attorney as well as an author, Leighton Rockefeller. Welcome, sir, to the program. Good morning, Jay, and thank you very much for having me on. My pleasure. You are located as a uh, an attorney in Tucson, Arizona, and for some reason, don't know why, you chose that same city as the background for the story. Where did the idea for diminished capacity come from, and why did you decide to share it with the world? Jay, I've practiced law in Tucson now for 47 years, mm. and I had a lot of experiences, and early in my career, I did a lot of criminal uh, representation, and I represented a repo man. And when you represent a repo man, you learn about human nature, because mm-hmm. nobody wants their power taken away from them, and they operate in the dead of night, and uh, it can lead to very scary consequences. And some of the criminal cases that you represent people on, you believe in the person's innocence, or you can't wait to see them get convicted. Right. 
So over the years, I had a mishmash of cases that kept rolling around in my brain that I thought I could roll together and make a storyline out of, and uh, that's the result of diminished capacity. Uh, one of the storylines in your book, uh, obviously, it uh, I say obviously, but I, I believe it would be a, a common sense uh, conclusion that there is murder and mayhem in your book. You have uh, one incident that has to do with an axe and an axe murderer. Was that based on uh, a real case, perhaps? Yes, it was. Really? Ooh. But it was the blunt end of the axe. Okay. Well, that, they're forgiven. It wasn't the sharp end of the axe. Well, that's good to know. Good to know. I would call this then an adult an adult novel, uh, basically a little older audience, correct? Well, it's it's. I would say 18 to 64 is my target audience. Anybody who uh, has an experience with uh, a frightening situation that they've been confronted with and have to act quickly without a lot of thought. Um, and some of us have been put in that situation. Some of us haven't, but that's really what it's all about. I, I take a, a very mild mannered college educated businessman, thrust him into a very, very stressful situation. Um, he thinks the situation's over and a few moments later determines that the man that he thought he had disabled with a gunshot on his back porch is missing and he doesn't know where he is. So he's panicked and goes looking for him and we go from there. Uh, Leighton, as you uh, decided, and again, you have mentioned you have other books that have not been released yet. This is the first release you've done as a fictional writer. Uh, did it take a long time to blend all of your history, your 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 legal history and the individuals you met along the way into this story? Did it take a long time to complete? How, how long did it take? It did, and I have two other novels that are released. You can find them on Amazon.com. Ah. Um, so one is called Immaculate Deception, and one is called Final Option, and they follow the protagonist here, Larry Ross, and in other cases. And in terms of uh, how long did it take me to write this? Yes. Um, only about years. Well, that's <laughs> man, only about yeah, 49 years, perhaps, something. Uh, you're <laughs> <laughs> No, what happened was I, I started writing the novel in 1997, I think, and my practice got really busy and I put it on the shelf and didn't think about it. And then in 2001, we moved and everything went in boxes, of course. Mm. And then in 2004, I was finally sorting out some of the boxes and I came across my work and I read what I'd written. I thought, you know, this is pretty good. I ought to finish it. So I finished it, not real quickly, but I got it finished and then started shopping around for a publisher and you know, and then the bug had me, so I quickly wrote uh, Immaculate Deception and Final Option shortly thereafter. But this is the anchor book, and this is the book that starts to tell the story. And I've often said you don't have to read the books in order to enjoy them. 
but it makes more sense if you do. Well, beautifully, beautifully put. You, you uh, have you always had that uh, desire, that passion for writing, or perhaps reading other novelists and uh, trying to emulate their success? I am a voracious reader, beautiful, and I've probably read just about everything that James Patterson and John Grisham and Steve Martini have ever written. <laughs> Um, I've always been a writer. I can remember when I was in grade school, my friend Billy Smith and I would write stories <laughs> and the teacher would read them to the class. That's really? how good they were. Wow. So yeah, I've always been a writer and, uh, I'd like to think that as a lawyer, I'm a pretty good wordsmith. So it's, I, I've, you know, I read books and I, I see plot lines and I, I get very critical about plot lines when they don't make sense. Mm. You know, I don't like that when something happens that should have happened before or should have happened afterwards or happened too quickly. I, I don't like that. So I try to make my story make sense in terms of how things progress through the legal system. Beautiful. And so I'm imagining from this or surmising, if I may surmise, that you write from an outline and you have character development prior to going to the story itself, the creative process. Yes and no. Um, hmm. I do make a rough outline. I do create my characters. Um, and then I start writing, and it pretty much is a free flow and a start and a stop and a do over. And then I go back and I check for continuity. And if things aren't right, I fix it. Um, I'm not a writer that sticks to a rigid outline because. A lot of times the thoughts come to me as I'm as I'm writing and as I'm thinking, well, let's try this. Let's see if this works. And if I like it, I keep it. If I don't, I rewrite it. How beautiful. A Diminished, a diminished Capacity uh, is a legal suspense novel. It, did you also include some action scenes, uh, you know, the type of thing that could be adapted to a movie, for instance? Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is this is. Uh, Definitely movie material. In fact, we're working on a screenplay for it right now. Excellent. Um, you know, it's it's conflict, conflict, conflict. Um, the main protagonist is Larry Ross, who is a young lawyer in Tucson, doing what he can to earn a living and support his family. And this case comes along through the back door, and it almost gets taken away from him by his ex-partner, who's not... Uh, the most ethical lawyer in town. And then he gets it back. And then he takes another big case that he probably shouldn't have taken, but finds an older lawyer from Texas to help him out with it. So he's got these two big cases struggling along here. And in the meantime, there's poor Tom Rogers, who's the accused in this murder. And he's looking at Larry thinking, well, this is the only guy that I've got who's going to keep me out of prison for the rest of my life. Why is he working on other cases? Well, of course, Larry has to work on other cases. No lawyer just takes one case and works on it exclusively. Mm. So there's a lot of conflict here. There's even some romance. Uh, Tom falls in love with Larry's secretary, and uh, Tom and his wife have got their issues, and uh, Larry's trying to keep his family together. And it, it's just there's a lot of – there's even some really riveting courtroom scenes where uh, – uh, somebody tries to murder somebody in the courtroom. Whoa. That's, that's, 
Yeah. I ho- hopefully that didn't happen in real life. I won't ask, but uh, the uh, it did not happen in real life. That, <laughs> that's why it's a fiction novel. But uh, <laughs> it could happen in real life, it's, it's, and it's uh, really good. Yeah, it could, and uh, you know the courthouse is pretty secure, but it's not perfect like anything else. And there's ways of getting weapons into the courthouse, and I figured out how to do that and created a scenario that I thought was pretty realistic. Fascinating. You, in your book and in your novel, uh, I'm curious about the, um, about the fact that this obviously takes some investigation. Uh, did you have a private investigator or anybody in law enforcement also included in the novel, or is it all done at the attorney level? No, there are police officers in the novel. In fact, one of the, the homicide detectives is a pretty main character, and the county attorney who prosecuted the case is a pretty main character. And, you know, like I said, over my career, I have many friends that are in law enforcement. I have many friends that work at the county attorney's office. I have many friends that are uh, psychologists and psychiatrists and physicians and I can draw from all of their expertise and, you know, we have a pretty good story. Beautiful. Uh, so, now, um, will, will the reader end up disliking, disdaining the, uh, murderer, the, the bad guy in this book? How would you describe them and how did you develop their character? Well, the bad guy is named Art Mendoza and he's pretty despicable. He's mm. a, he's a career felon. He, lives on the fringe. He has a salvage yard that is really a chop shop. He uh, is not a nice man. And he gets introduced to Tom Rogers, who's the accused, uh, through his wife, uh, who was taking a class at the university with Art's daughter. And they come up with a plan to open this bar near the U of A, and Art's going to front the money, and Tom's going to run it. Well, Art can't stay away from the bar and he's foul mouthed and he likes to get drunk and he starts fights and pretty soon nobody wants to come to the bar because Art Mendoza is a big menace. So of course the bar's not making money. They get into a great big argument. Art threatens Tom. He's the one that ends up dead. Tom ends up being accused. Mm. And the, the link is the diminished capacity is the link is that, Tom doesn't have any recollection of the second part of the killing, which is picking up the axe. Um, He doesn't have any memory of that. And there's a psychiatric phenomenon that goes along with that. It's, it's, It's called dissociative disorder or diminished capacity. When you're put under such stress and you've never been in a situation like that, your your mind just blocks it out. So the defense really rests on, expert testimony of a world-renowned psychologist in this area uh, defending Tom that he was placed in this situation not by his own choosing. He defended himself, was fine. Secondarily, he thought the victim was still lurking out there with a gun trying to kill him and doesn't have any memory of how the final death occurred. So he couldn't be responsible for what he did because at the time he was in a dissociative state and didn't know the difference between right and wrong. So you're going to hate Art Mendoza. He's pretty hateable. 
And you're going to like Tom Rogers, even though he killed his business partner. Fascinating. Uh, the book is uh, really, again, a page-turner, as they describe it. Lots of action, lots of storyline and character development. Uh, really the first in a series of three that have been uh, written so far, but this is the latest the release, 250-some uh, pages, the title of which, again, is Diminished Capacity, a novel of legal suspense. My guest author, Leighton Rockefeller. That's Rockefeller, and not Rockefeller. So uh, be on the, on the lookout for Rockefeller when you do a, a search, if you're doing a search online. Uh, Leighton, where do we get copies of your book? Well, you can get them through iUniverse.com. Or you can go on Amazon, just type in Leighton Rockefeller, R-O-C-K-A-F-E-L-L-O-W, and all three novels will come up. You can also go to LeightonRockefeller.com, and this one will come up. And you know, once you read one, you're going to want to read the other two, because they're pretty interesting. Well, congratulations on completing these and uh, making the initial steps and the continuing journey of being a what we would like to describe as a world-class author. Thanks again for sharing your story of diminished capacity. And uh, look forward, I think in the future there's a possibility where maybe we'll see a movie of some similar storyline or story name. Thanks again, Leighton, for joining me today. Jay, thank you so much, and I look forward to talking to you again. My pleasure. For iUniverse, this is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. It's the Fitness Minute with fitness expert, Annette Hammond. When your focus is to lose weight or maintain your present weight, exercising effectively to burn the most calories is crucial. You want to give yourself every advantage to burn as many calories as possible. One good tip is to do your strength training exercises standing up so you can keep your heart rate up Another tip is to perform multi-joint exercises when you can. For example, as you're doing a forward lunge, add bicep curls while you're coming up from the lunge. Another example is to execute a wide squat. And as you're coming up from the squat, perform a shoulder press. By doing these multi-joint exercises, you're putting more demands on your body, keeping your heart rate up, and working more muscles at the same time. The goal is to burn the most calories during that workout. I'm Annette Hammond. To hear other fitness and weight loss tips, visit our website at AnnetteHammond.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio. Greetings for iUniverse. This is Jay Douglas Barker. The book is titled The Twelve Murders of Christmas, a Tony Day Mystery. And joining me is the author and an, an author of seven in the series. This is the seventh in the series, if I if I understand it correctly, is the author Jane Bennett Monroe. Doctor Jane, welcome to the program. Thank you. This uh, again is a fairly ambitious, at least from my perspective. I I uh, I have a short attention span, so ten or fifteen pages of reading actually gets me uh, gives me a headache. Uh, this is three hundred thirty eight pages, and to actually write a uh, a script or a story that has a semblance of uh, unity and uh, purpose is a, a major miracle from my perspective. How did you begin writing this series of Tony Day mysteries? Well, I it all started with Murder, She Wrote. People seem surprised to hear that, but I used to watch that show. I loved that show. Mm. And I, I thought, you know, if a school teacher from Maine can do it, 
then a pathologist from Idaho can do it. <laughs> and I thought when I retired, you know, it would be a fun thing to have to do to keep me busy. Because a lot of the doctors I've known that retire die shortly thereafter, and I really Ooh. didn't want to have any truck with that. Well, I'm, I'm... So, yeah. So uh, back in 1985, I had an experience with a temporary physician that came to our, our hospital to uh, help out with weekend call. And after a while, she was doing, you know, she was helping out during the day as well, which is when I encountered her. And she was a nasty piece of work. She she was hmm. abusive to my pecs. She was contemptuous of me. She uh, complained about the lab incessantly. She wrote a letter to the medical staff complaining about me. And it was just awful. And, you know, I was a lot younger then and a lot thinner skinned, and it really kind of did a number on me. Mm. So I said to myself, self, someday you can write a book and kill her off. <laughs> In the book only. <laughs> yes. In, only in the book, yeah. Oh, yes. And that was my first book, Murder Under the Microscope. Incredible. Started out with that, yeah. The story... And that one was, that was 428 pages. That's the longest of all of them. That's amazing. I, I'm fascinated yeah. by authors and people who love to work and have that creative process. I'm a creative person, but again, it's short uh, short spurts. I'd, I don't know that I could could uh, put a story together that had a rational storyline in uh, the number of pages necessary to keep people's attention. This particular book has a Christmas motif on the cover, if I can uh, describe it that way, titled The Twelve Murders of Christmas. And uh, sort of like Hallmark, this is not a book simply for the season. It's actually one that could be read year-round. Explain the uh, title a little bit for my listeners. Well, I just thought it would be fun to turn a Christmas carol into a murder mystery. I don't know. I was, you know, I was sitting there minding my own business, watching probably a Hallmark movie on TV and <laughs> said, you know, how about how about the 12 murders of Christmas? How would that be? And my friend said, uh, that sounds good to me. What are you going to do? Kill off a jury? And I said, yeah, I am. And I had a ready made person because in my first book, Tony was stalked by an old boyfriend that wouldn't take no for an answer and uh, kidnapped her husband and locked him up in a crawl space in the dead of winter where he got hantavirus pneumonia and almost died. So that guy went to prison. And so I figured, you know, it, it was like in the timeline of the books, it was like 10 or 11 years later. And he was supposed to be serving a life sentence for kidnapping, but he got paroled. Mm. Hm. And... Suddenly, the jurors that were on that jury started dying. And it was, you know, pretty obvious as the book went on, you know, that naturally this guy has to be the killer. Who else would want to, you know? But then there was a few other people that got involved and took, you know, I have to throw in red herrings. So I threw in a few more characters just to make it interesting. And then everybody had to untangle everything they knew about each juror and everything they knew about the other people that were getting in the mix to come out at the end was still the right one. And I'm not going to say who it actually was. Oh, please That's spill the beans. Alert. No, that would be yeah. a spoiler. No, the the uh, 12, yeah. uh, 12 uh, Murders of Christmas and the other books, uh, other novels, uh, mysteries that you have uh, have penned, 
your writing style, how would you describe it? Is it, would you, would you say, for, at least from what I see, more of a conversational approach to the murder mystery? Is it deeply technical? Uh, how, how do you approach it? I do a lot with dialogue because, you know, as a pathologist, there's bound to be a lot of medical jargon in there. And so I deal with that by explaining it, by having Tony explain it to her husband or to a friend or have her discuss it with another one of her colleagues or whatever, so that it gets explained. So few people complain about the jargon because it does get explained. Hmm. So I do a lot, I do a lot with dialogue and I don't always show up at a, at a murder scene. I mean, Tony doesn't, I get her confused with myself a lot. (laughs) So (laughs) anyway, um, she doesn't always show up at the murder scene. She, you know, she does a lot. She has a son-in-law who's a homicide detective. Fascinating. And he comes over and talks to her and and uh, talks about cases and whatnot. And she usually ends up doing an autopsy if it's required. So they talk about that. So, yeah, I do a lot. I do, it, it is a conversational sort of approach. And is there an outline that you work from? Some authors are just capable of sitting down and letting their imagination run, and uh, then they'll go back and maybe do a, a clean up, <laughs> clean up some of the debris if there is any at the end of the process. Or do you work from a, a real tight outline? I tried to do an outline with my first book, and the story just didn't want to go where the outline did. Mm. So I don't use an outline. I do. I do. I just let the story go wherever it wants to, and then if I need to clean stuff up at the end, I do. Beautiful approach. I've had some authors take 10 or 15 years to complete their work. This didn't take that long, I'm guessing, if you've already completed seven. uh, This is the seventh in the series. How long does it typically take to start from day one to completion? It usually takes a year or two. Does it? Wow. It takes me about a year to write the book, and then to get it through the publishing process takes almost another year. Amazing. And because it's conversational, yeah. my thoughts, uh, you know, I did mention the Hallmark Channel. This is a kind of book I would think would be a wonderful storyline for either a series or for a uh, maybe movie of the week. What, what do you think? Has, has there been an interest yet in any of your books? Well, my uh, marketing consultant has uh, sold me a package where I get to pitch to 25 movie studios or or TV uh, producers or whatever. And I've done like maybe eight or nine of them so far. Mm. And we're kind of, we're all kind of leaning toward a miniseries. Fabulous. I I think it would be wonderful, at least from, from what I have seen of your book and of uh, your characters. Uh, Tony would be a wonderful, a wonderful character to, uh, to stand behind and cheer. I'm, I'm thinking from the way you've described her and, and the work that's, uh, that's been done in putting these novels together. Do you also include action? I mean, is this a book that a guy that's uh, maybe a f- football nut or some other aggressive personality, that they'll read this and uh, enjoy the, uh, the process of reading it? Well, there's some, there is some action in it particularly at the end where Tony usually ends up in a fight for her life Mm. because she's gotten too close, you know, too close for comfort. But sometimes there are things that happen during the course of the story, like somebody will follow her home, you know, and then she's being followed, she's being stalked, 
somebody uh, puts a bomb under her car. Oh, boy. You know, things like that. And uh, so she knows somebody is trying to hide something. And so, yeah, there is there is some action. It's not all action, but there's some there is some in there. That's Tony's pretty athletic. Character driven for sure. And the book reviewers, have they had anything positive to say? I mean, I hate to say negative, but what has been the response from reviewers? They seem to like them. I usually get, you know, five and four and sometimes three and a half star reviews. Beautiful. Very rarely any ones or twos. Beautiful. The process and the audience, if you were to describe the the general reader of your other novels and mysteries uh, how would you describe them are they an older audience are they uh, would a young person maybe in high school enjoy reading the storyline as well i think that it could apply to almost any age not children because i put you know there's swearing in there okay but uh, i have had i have had uh, teenagers buy my books they always say they're buying them for their mother, but, you know. <laughs> sneaky, <laughs> Unless the sneaky mother is actually guys, there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, you don't really know whether they're going to, you know, re- read it and then give it to their mother. Sure. And that, that's what people do around here. I mean, this is not a wealthy community by any means, and so some member of the family will buy the book and then pass it around to 25 other people. Mm. So they don't have to buy it. But I find that uh, mostly it is an older demographic, and usually women. And because it's dealing with a pathologist, that's, again, somewhat unique. Are there other books that follow that same genre in uh, in the marketplace? That are written by pathologists? Either written by the pathologists or maybe have that as the, the, the main heroine or hero in the storyline. Yeah, I, I read something a while back that had a beautiful, young, uh, gorgeous, sexy female pathologist who was way too young to be where she was in the book. Mm -hmm. Because what does not get out of a pathology residency much before age 31 or 32? Wow. And then to get high up in the hierarchy of of, uh, of a medical staff, especially in a university setting, you'd have to be a lot older than 32. I understand. So obviously that was not written by anybody who knows anything about pathologists. But... uh, at the hospital that I used to work at, I'm retired now, but uh, I've I've been a pathologist here in Twin Falls for 42 years. And it's the same job, but it's been at three different hospitals that got sold and bought and sold and bought. And so, you know, I was in three different hospitals, but it was always the same job. So the medical community around here knows me very well. Mm. And they seem to like my books. You have the history of being a pathologist, now an author. I would think mm-hmm. that writing a book would be challenging. Were there challenges in in assembling the series, and uh, what were they that you had to overcome? Well, the time factor was one thing, because you know, working working uh, full time didn't have a lot of time to to write. Once I got home, I was tired. I just wanted to crash. But what I found was that there's a lot of downtime in pathology once you get the surgical signed out and the paps read and uh, deal with whatever clinical problems come up uh, and you don't have any frozen sections to do. Sometimes you have some downtime and you can either read journals or you can do something else. And what I did was I, I write my 
books on my little laptop, which I have at my in my recliner where I sit and watch TV. <laughs> and I have a little thumb drive what I downloaded onto this little thumb drive, and I take that to work with me, plug it into my work computer, and keep working. Wow. Organization, for sure, and uh, beautifully mm-hmm. done. Again, a great accomplishment from my perspective, not only your personal career, but also your secondary career as an author. Uh, part of the Tony Day Mystery Series, this book titled The Twelve Murders of Christmas, a Tony, T-O-N-I, Day Mystery, and my author, Dr. Jane Bennett Monroe. Where can listeners get a copy of this, Dr. Jane? Well, they're all available on Amazon and BarnesandNoble.com and at my publisher, iUniverse.com. And then there's another publisher that published it also called Lit Prime. So LitPrime.com is another source. And also, there's a uh, Magic Valley Council for the Arts here. Uh, I don't know where you're located, but in Twin Falls, this is located in the same building that the restaurant Elevation 486 is. And they've got an office there, and they sell my books in that office. Excellent. And they're the ones that set up the trade shows around town. They do Twin Falls Art in the Park and uh, Thousand Springs Festival of the Arts, which is down in the Snake River Canyon. Mm. Beautiful location. And, and they do another one called The Art of the Gift right around Christmas time. Uh, and they they sell my books. They are very good to me. They do a lot of advertising on my behalf. They love me. What's not so to, what's I'm not very to happy love. to have that, that kind of a liaison. Yes. Congratulations. Yeah. You have uh, completed or are in the process of, uh, of completing. Is, is there a, a continuing series? Uh, this is the seventh in the, in the series. Will this be a, an ongoing process for you? More books to come in the future? I haven't decided. I'm, I'm flat out of ideas at the moment. Uh-huh. It's like, I, you know, like I had seven books in me, but now what? But I'm, yeah, I'm thinking. I'm thinking. I'd like to keep on writing. I enjoy it. You're obviously very uh, good at it, and uh, a retired pathologist living in mm-hmm. Idaho. Well, that's a, those are two wonderful things to put on a resume. Plus, this mm-hmm. book, "The Twelve Murders of Christmas." a Tony Day mystery, and uh, listeners, you can request it by name, The Twelve Murders of Christmas, or by the author, Jane Bennett. Monroe is spelled M-U-N-R-O, and uh, the local bookseller can order it in and uh, get it to you. You can also order it again online through Amazon and Barnes & Noble and other online booksellers by requesting it by the title. You also can follow Dr. Jane on her website, janebennettmonroe.com and learn more about this book and the others in the series. Thank you, Dr. Jane, for joining me today and sharing your story. Wonderful. Thank you for having me. My pleasure for iUniverse. This is J. Douglas Barker. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.